This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Hedwig Waters. Hedwig is a Horizon Europe ERA postdoctoral fellow at Palatsky University in the Czech Republic. She is a cultural and economic anthropologist with special research interests in topics of debt, wildlife, and moral economic transitions in Mongolia. Hedwig and I first met a couple of years ago when she was a research fellow here at the International Institute for Asian Studies, when she was revising and expanding her dissertation research into a book manuscript. As part of a writing group she organized around that time, I had the pleasure of reading and discussing one of her chapters, and I've been excited for the book to come out ever since. Earlier this month, that book, Moral Economic Transitions in the Mongolian Borderlands, A Proportional Share, was published by University College London Press as part of their special series, Economic Exposures in Asia. The book explores contemporary economic, political, and cultural changes stemming from Mongolia's shift to a market democracy since the 1990s. Through a careful ethnography in a rural township near the Chinese border, she links this broader story to local changes with respect to debt and the wildlife trade in everyday life. In so doing, as the synopsis on the back of the book states, Hedwig, quote, details the complex inner worlds, moral ambiguities, and emergent collective politics constructed by individuals who feel caught in political economic shifts largely outside of their control, end quote. In the following conversation, Hedwig and I discuss her work and the new book. I want to mention that Moral Economic Transitions in the Mongolian Borderlands was published as an open access title, so it's freely available and I would encourage listeners to seek it out. Until then... Here is my conversation with Hedwig Waters. Hedwig Waters, thanks for joining us on the channel. Happy to talk to you about your new book and your work in Mongolia. Thanks for having me here today, Ben. So your work explores the period following the post-socialist transition in Mongolia, when the country shifted basically to a market economy and became increasingly dependent on international mining revenue. For listeners, including me, who may not be especially familiar with this context, can you just briefly sketch out the economic transformation that has occurred in Mongolia during that period since, say, the early 90s? Um, gladly. So I actually will start pretty general because, like you said, I don't know how much I can assume people know about Mongolia. That's all right. Um, so Mongolia is a country in Central East Asia um, that is sequestered right now, very unfortunately, between Russia and China. And it's a huge country. So to give you an, like kind of a, you know, like a visual or a conceptualization of how big. It's four Germanys right next to each other, um, or more than that. And it's actually and with three million people. So it's like the population of Berlin, like scattered across four Germanys. So it's a huge country that's fairly empty. And it's got the capital city named Ulaanbaatar as um, 
yeah, capital city Ulaanbaatar with 1.5 million people. And then so the rest of the country, this huge land area is another around 2 million, 1.5 million people. And Mongolia is internationally pretty well known or like often associated with pastoral herders. So Mongolia has a huge population of, of pastoral, like a large population of pastoral herders. So those are people who live in felt tents, you know, known as yurts, who travel around with their animals and live off of these animals. And so that's just to frame Mongolia. <laughs> but so to get into like the contemporary stuff, prior to 1990, Mongolia was uh, like a, a socialist country called the Mongolian People's Republic. And as the USSR gradually collapsed in, you know, in the late uh, 1980s, um, Mongolia also started a gradual transition towards being a market democracy. So it's seen internationally as a fairly peaceful revolution. So Mongolia in 1989 started passing laws that kind of transitioned the country from this socialist, centrally organized, collectivized system to a more kind of privatized market system. And this happened through the passing of a regulation in 1991 by the government known as a, the privatization reform, where a lot, so previously in the countryside during the Soviet um, era, among um, many, the rural area was collectivized into these large scale cooperatives, kind of like in Russia, like with the Kolkuts. So the rural area is populated by these uh, collectives that where um, that each had maybe like a state farm or a large scale pastoral co cooperative where people lived in the cooperative and worked for it. And then um, they received all they needed from the cooperative in terms of food and um, health care and such things. So when the reform was passed in 1991, that instantly dissolved all these cooperatives. So all the people in the countryside suddenly were unemployed but they received these kind of vouchers with which they could take private property from these former cooperatives and then take them as their own. So it was like seen as this idea of now we're giving you this private property. So now use it on the market to like make your fortune in the new economy. So the first, the 1990s were generally like people just trying to grapple with this new reality of how do we like, how do we make money with this? And like, what does this mean? And um, so in the early 1990s in Mongolia, of course, as you can imagine, um, unemployment was really high and uh, poverty skyrocketed because people had previously had this employment, secured employment, and then suddenly had, you know, were, all, were unemployed. And so the, in, in Ulaanbaatar, so the capital city again, which I'll call a lot in this UB because it's like colloquially what people refer to Ulaanbaatar as, and it's like a lot easier to repeat all the time than Ulaanbaatar. So, uh, so the parliament in UB in the late 1990s, uh, or like various parliament members were just were discussing like how can we jumpstart the economy uh, in Mongolia because because they're of the poverty level and how could we get this how could we get Mongolian economy to really be jumpstarted and to participate in like global uh, markets. And so um, when the Democratic Party, the Mongolian Democratic Party became, uh, came into power in the late 90s, they decided to pass a mining law known, known as the Minerals Law, which at the time uh, when they passed it in 1997 was widely deemed one of the most liberal 
mining regulations in the world because it was constructed with the intention of like attracting foreign investment to come to Mongolia with um, very little um, with taxes for getting licensing and prospecting. So this was seen as, you know, internationally like lauded, highly lauded as this like excellent move to attract international investors. And so a lot of investors went to Mongolia and Mongolia became kind of like a darling in the international investment circle uh, circles. Um, it was like also coined as Mongolia because of how much mining attract investment and attraction it received. And in 2001, um, um, the one of the largest copper and gold deposits in the world were discovered was discovered in the Gobi Desert, and this deposit is known as um, Oyutoshkoi or Turquoise Hill. Um, and it was there was a lot of speculation and excitement around this and other deposits that were discovered at the time, and um, this kind of this speculation just kind of drew a lot of attention internationally. And so Mongolia's economy just, just uh, started snowballing, which culminated in 2011 with the fastest growing uh, economic rate in the world at 17.3%. So that was probably the pinnacle of the mining boom. Um, I should also say that it was not just speculation, but also at the time, there were issues with coal mines in Australia. So uh, Mongolia became the source for coal for China at the time. So this kind of speculation also coincided with a general commodity cycle that worked in Mongolia's favor. And so that's why that culminated in this boom in 2011. Um, but then in the years after that, this commodity cycle cooled, but also... Um, the speculation kind of cooled because we can talk about it in a bit, but there was like increasing backlashes or different in different programs implemented by the government to like reduce the, how liberal this mining mineral law was. And for those reasons, some of the speculation cooled. So then Mongolia was no longer this darling in the same way. And so since then, the Mongolian economy after it's like rise then has now been lagging since then. So since 2012, I would say it's just kind of peter been petering out and going, going up, and up and down at various rates, but never reached that pinnacle again. Thanks for laying out that context. I want to now turn to your history with Mongolia. You first visited the country in 2006, I think as an undergraduate student. What brought you to Mongolia at that time? Um, yes, I know it's not, you know, it's like, why would you go there? I get asked that a lot. <laughs> um, but so why Mongolia? Well, actually, it was mostly happenstance. I didn't like look at a brochure or have some type of I actually knew pretty much nothing about Mongolia uh, when I decided to go there. But when I was an undergrad, basically, you know, I was 19 and I wanted to study abroad someplace very far away. And I also wanted to do something that I had never, ever thought of doing. I just wanted a really conceptually different experience. So uh, in when I was applying to study abroad programs, I actually got into one which may be of interest to you from your background, but uh, or your, you know, ethnographic interests, but I was supposed to go to Nepal, actually. But then there was a democratic revolution, I believe, in Nepal in 2006. And so my university said, 
you know, definitely, we can't send, definitely not, we can't send you there. So they basically pulled me into their office and gave me a bunch of, were like, what do you want? Like, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I want to go something, do something I've never thought of doing before. And they said, how about living with herders in Mongolia? And I was like, well, that would do it. <laughs> so yeah, so like within two weeks, I was on a plane. And then like, uh, not no, not two weeks, within two months, I was on a plane. And then like a week after we arrived in UB for the first time, I was in Siberia on a horse being taken to my yurt where I was going to live for the next month. So it was a crazy experience. But um, since then, I guess I just, I just loved it, you know? And so then I just kept applying to things that would bring me back and they worked. So that's how that, how that evolved. Yeah. It's funny to think we might've been doing our dissertation research at the same time in Kathmandu, if things had gone a little differently for you. I know, right? Um, so just to remind listeners again, the, the new book with UCL Press is Moral Economic Transitions in the Mongolian Borderlands. And in the first few pages of the book, you describe how the capital, UB as you call it, transformed in the time since that first visit in 2006. Um, during subsequent trips in 2011 and then again in 2015 when you began your dissertation research, what were some of these big changes that you witnessed in the capital city? Um, yeah, I mean, UB was, and the cityscape of UB has been greatly transformed by the changes that Mongolia has underwent. And I, I definitely saw that through my different experiences or through my different trips when I arrived. So when I first traveled to UB in 2006, um, and I landed in the airport, the Genghis Khan or Chinggis Khan airport <laughs> right outside of the city, you, you got in the car and then you drove a half an hour and you were really in the middle of nothing. It was like the step, 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 step. And then you suddenly arrived in the core of the city. And that was because UB was originally, or in its current form, was built during the Soviet era to house 500,000 people only. So it was a relatively small city, built city. Um, and so in 2006, you could still, you know, it was... Still, it was larger than that, but still the core of the city was this like internal part of the city. And you still notice that by little things like you could still, you could easily travel to the, the boundary of it quickly or things like um, already then, but now we can talk about it as a really strong phenomenon, but already then some herders had already started moving it to UB and setting up kind of squatting the areas around the, the core city. So just setting up their yurt there and squatting the area with the hope that they would become eventually be able to like claim that land as their own. But back then though, you could still see people like riding horses in the inner city and such things. But then <laughs> the next time I came to UB in 2011, so that's like right as the mining boom is really taking off. And when you landed, I remember it was pretty like, like a pretty, like out of a, a movie a bit, like kind of cliche. But when I landed and then arrived in UB, there were suddenly skyscrapers and, and like I was on the like center plaza and there was like a giant Coca-Cola sign. It's like a very like classic, like globalization discourse kind of thing. And then also they were building a skyscraper next to the central like central plaza that had like a Burberry shop in the bottom level. And suddenly like the 
conspicuous wealth that was also evident in the city was just something that had previously not 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 been there in that same degree. Um, so at that time, also like my, the field work I was interested in changed. Like at that time, I was doing field work on cosmetic surgery, and that was a thing that had really proliferated. Then I was doing field work with people who were interested in K-pop and were getting like eye surgery and were like self-actualizing through consumption. So like buying Burberry bags and stuff. So it was like a huge contrast to like my previous experience. Like, you know, I am milking a yak. I am carrying the pail to my gare, which is the word for yurt in Mongolian. So yeah, that was really stark then in 2011. And then when I came back for my field work, for my doctoral work in 2015, so that was post-boom, and it felt a bit like that. In the book, I quote a parliament member who talks about how, like, Mongolia was then hung over, but it kind of, like, after the boom, but it kind of felt like that because with all these herders also moving to the edge of the city and setting up their yurts um, and creating these districts, which are called the Ger districts, so Ger being yurt in Mongolian, um, many of them also didn't have infrastructure. So in order to heat their gears, they had to burn coal. And so this coal smoke was like settling on the city, kind of like this dampening blanket over it. Um, and so you definitely felt like when you when I came back in 2015, though, there was like this dampened spirit a bit. And um, it was also indicative in things like during the mining boom, they had done a lot of building, obviously, like with the skyscrapers. But then in 2015, there were all these like half empty buildings because they couldn't find people to fill all the buildings they had built. So things like that, there were a lot of there was like a lot of empty spaces and like failed wealth and those kind of in indicators when I came back the second uh, the third time. Yeah. Yeah, that brings us back nicely to the the main topic of this economic transformation to a market economy, which relied heavily in the case of Mongolia on natural resource extraction, as you mentioned before. And you note in the book that there was a lot of hype around this period, a lot of like dynamism and a sense of booming going on, but that now, three decades later, many feel that that promise remains unfulfilled. 30 years later, how has that shift from socialism to a market democracy transformed Mongolia and the livelihoods of its people? So, I mean, I've touched a bit about it with the like inequality and the like coal, you know, the air pollution, those kind of things. Um, so there's a lot of debate around if Mongolia has now been struck by the resource curse, as it's called in political economic circles or or Dutch disease. But essentially, that's the idea um, oh, yeah, you're in the Netherlands. Maybe you've heard this term. <laughs> but um, that's the idea that when a country ha is like been has a lot of underground wealth, like raw material wealth, like oil or mi mining, and that wealth is then like highly lucrative on international markets, that the government or the or the economy in general becomes highly dependent on just that resource and in the course of doing so neglects other forms of revenue and also because of the overt focus on that one resource, um, other industries in the country struggle because they can't compete in the same way with how lucrative this, this industry is. So um, I would definitely say, I mean, resource curse is like a larger term with different like underpinnings but it definitely is the case that Mongolia's economy, like at least on the macro level, has become very focused on mining. So I actually encountered the statistic when I was doing 
the due diligence for my book that um, around 80% of Mongolia's exports are mining related or minerals, but only 5% of employment in Mongolia is in the mining sector. So you can see that even though it's, of course, like a very lucrative um, industry, it doesn't in any way distribute widely. So that is definitely what you feel. And me doing field work in the rural areas, that was definitely very palpable and visible. Um, this kind of like that a lot of the wealth or interest was flowing from urban centers or like focused, hyper-focused in UB or in the center of UB, but not really distributing outwards. And um, so to just move away from UB, because we are talking about rural areas now in this book. So I'll just talk a little bit about like what this one-sidedness meant for rural areas. So I talked earlier about during the Soviet Union, they had these centrally organized state farms that were throughout the countryside that focus on different resources. And so they, of course, collapsed or they were dissolved in the privatization reforms. And really, since then, there have been individual companies that have moved to rural areas, but there is really not in any way the same amount of employment opportunities in rural Mongolia that there is in UB. So essentially, that does make in many ways like a brain drain or a vacuum in the rural areas. So in really rural areas far out, there's pretty much no economic opportunity. Also, because in order to compete on a market or like an international market, you have to have consumers. And if you are a, like a herder that lives 500 kilometers from UB, you don't even have anyone to really buy your meat. So essentially, there is a huge centralization that that creates like herders themselves even if they can make the food they need in rural areas, like they can live from their own herds in order to sell their meat and cashmere and other things, milk and yogurt, they have to move to a location that is like close to some location where they have consumers. So that essentially just means there is this, you know, vac there's this centralization going on, even of herders moving towards urban places um, and just like a general lack of industry in rural areas completely. Yeah, since you mentioned the rural areas, this seems like a good time to turn towards your particular field site. You're coming at this work, if we haven't said so already, as an anthropologist and as an ethnographer, and you explore all these themes that you're talking about of this post-socialist transition and the fallout from the mining boom and then bust in a place that you call Magtal on the border with China. How did you first come to that particular site and why did you feel it was a good place to examine this bigger economic story? It is somewhat random or coincidental that I ended up in this area. Um, but I should say that, so when I returned to Mongolia in 2015 to do my field work, I was in a five-headed research team based in the Department of Anthropology at University College London at UCL. And um, the point of this larger research team, which was an EU funded or ERC funded team, was to look at how, like, if I say it like hyperbolically, how Mongolia, like how cultures changed with the shift from like this more herding, herding based economy to like being plunged into this like international market of mining speculation. So the point of the general project was for all of us to do research on how like these rapid shifts have affected people. And I was generally interested in, at the time, trade of various sorts. I didn't really know what I wanted to focus on specifically. 
but I was in UB kind of puttering around in 2015. And I was also interested in the idea of free trade zones. So in, a, in addition to um, mining, another policy that the Mongolian government in the early 2000s tried to implement to like attract international investment was to implement some free trade zones on the various borders with Russia and China. And so free trade zones, just to talk about them in case people aren't aware, is when a government creates a zone, like carves out a zone where the regulations within the zone are particularly favorable to companies so that they can make goods particularly cheaply and export them with really low customs duties and, and like with really advantageous rates. So the Mongolian government in 2004 had already created these like free trade zones on the border with China and in Russia, but they weren't very successful. Um, so I was kind of interested in this like failed vision of like a, a model that is like envisioned to be implementable everywhere, but wasn't an actuality with different factors. And so I was just puttering around UB in 2015, kind of trying to figure out what to do. And I did like travel down and look at one of these free trade zones which was like nothing except like a building. And my supervisor calls me and she's like, you know, like Hedwig, I just heard about a protest against a free trade zone in Eastern Mongolia. You should check that out. And I mean, it sounded really interesting. And what ended up happening was, is that apparently in 2015, the Mongolian government kind of in the summer uh, or the parliament, excuse me, um, impl passed this free trade zone regulation to create a giant agricultural free trade zone, which was twice the size of Luxembourg in size. So a huge area in the middle of Magtash <laughs> and then and then didn't tell the local people about it. So it was kind of like passed semi-secretively in parliament. And it was only through this like grassroots mobilization where people gradually found out about this and then local people really protesting against it that it became like this bigger national story. But so when I was in UB in 2015, one of the parliament members responsible for this free trade zone traveled out to Mugtash and uh, she encountered like a wave of protest, essentially the local pe people protesting and saying, we don't want this plan. And so that's what my supervisor had found out about. And I thought that sounded interesting. So two weeks later, I traveled out to Magtash for the first time to do kind of like a preliminary research trip to figure out exactly why people had been protesting against this uh, zone. And, um, you know, it was just to give uh, like a sense of scope. It was like a thousand kilometers away from UB. So it was like really far and so the people were protesting because partly of this like discrepancy of these decisions being made in UB that have really large effects on their lives, but also the lack of like awareness and also being informed about it. And I thought that that was just interesting, like as like a, a field site to to when to when considering these questions of like how does something like a macro level economic change affect people all over the country, including in this like super remote area on the Chinese border. So that's how it happened. One of the key lenses that you approach this through is through the idea of debt and different levels of debt and kinds of debt. So you talk about bank debt, but also personal debt and money lenders and what you theorize widely as the economy of favors. 
this is a complicated story and I know there's a lot of dimensions to it, but maybe you can just explain however you feel is easiest and most efficient, how debt operates, how it plays out in the lives of everyday residents in your field site. Mm-hmm. Well, so you asked me how UB had changed uh, also, or how like the different changes that happened in Mongolia in general. And um, one huge different also, a difference also between the different phases when I was in Mongolia is when, so this existed to an extent prior to the boom, but really with and after the boom, this was really prolific. But then you notice suddenly that in, in the like second two times, the like, second time I went to Mongolia, like suddenly everywhere there were signs for like payday loans and pawn shops and get loans here and here and reduced rates and all that stuff. And that was another like major change that suddenly emerged with the mining economy in like huge amounts. And that was partly because, I mean, there's many factors to why there was also internationally more interest in Mongolia as like a market. So more banks and bigger, more banking activity, but also the government itself started promoting like reduced mortgage loans and things like that. So it was for many reasons, but Many Mongolians at this time took out their first, like during the boom, took out their first consumer debt loan from a bank, many of them hoping to like segue into like having a home for the first time and creating many of these dreams that we recognize as like a good life. So like trying to actualize those through loans. Though what I thought was interesting is it didn't stop at one loan. It stopped, then people would get one loan and then get another. So they, for like a classic thing would be like people would get a mortgage loan and then they would get a salary salary loan using their salary as a collateral. And then when they couldn't pay those off or navigate it, then they would get a money lender loan. And then they get like, a, they, then they pawn their car and then they would ask friends and then so that like pretty much everyone I knew had like five ongoing loans and just the stress of seeing people running around trying to maintain this was, you know, anthropologically really interesting, but also, of course, hard for people. But then another thing that I thought was very curious in this was that it was very common in Mongolia and remains to be the case that people will take out bank loans and then they'll give it to their friends to pay off their own bank loans. So there's a lot of like bank loaned money being used to pay off bank loaned money and like these like really complex networks that Mongolians will create to like mutually or like as a group or in either complete like either working or non-working networks create like these these elaborate systems to pay off everybody's loans like moving money back and forth and when the when really when the bust happened or when the economy started faltering a bit, this turned into like a chronic thing. So really like it is very interesting still. And a lot of people wrote about the debt mechanisms during the the boom time. A lot of anthropologists um, started writing about this because it was just everywhere, but that it was just incredibly common for Mongolians to have many, many debts. And so when it comes to like Magtash as a, like a rural region, when I moved out there and in like my preliminary research phase where I said I was there for a few weeks trying to figure out what to do, I also started asking people about debt. And I discovered very quickly, of course, that everybody there as well was like super indebted. And I asked myself, like, how is this possible? Because you have, there's like almost no employment here. So if you like, there's very low employment in these rural areas. So how is it possible that ever like herders, you know, like unemployed people, why is there so much debt here? 
And so I wanted to figure out how that works, essentially. So that's that was like, I think, in addition to the free trade zone thing, I think just the questions of like, how is this debt tenable at all was why. And even in this like really remote place of like all the, these like pastoral herders that have loans, like how does this work? So that's kind of like why I decided to stay in that area. By way of answering that question of how so much debt can be tenable in a place like these borderlands between Mongolia and China, it brings us back to this commodification of natural resources, which is another kind of key pillar in your book. One of the one of the examples you give is a medicinal plant called Feng Feng. What is Feng Feng and what does it reveal about contemporary livelihood strategies and debt in post-transition Mongolia? So just to describe the situation a bit, I discussed how like post so in the post-socialist era, there was just kind of a vacuum of employment in the rural areas. So what happened essentially is you have people who now live in a market economy, they have no employment, but they're surrounded by these like untouched wild resources. So what happened is like as the Mongolian, as like Mongolia became integrated into international markets, but also opened its borders to Mongol, to Russia and China. Essentially, like I was talking about the issues with like, for example, herders moving towards markets Well, when the border to China opened up, it was just this huge market that suddenly was accessible. And so in the early 90s, or sorry, late 90s, really many rural Mongolians started engaging, started getting their money, not only through herding, but through gathering whatever resources were locally available and could be sold on the international market. So in the, in the late 90s, it was a scrap metal trade. So a lot of like going to the former Soviet infrastructure and just stripping it and selling it was like very common. But that segued gradually into the resources of the landscape. And so in my field site in Magtash, what happened was it was that in the late 1990s or early 2000s, kind of general, like maybe around 2000, Two Chinese workers who were working for a Mongolian company as temp labor in in Magtash kind of were there and realized that Magtash was full of this medicinal plant called Feng Feng, which grew wildly and as such is considered organic because it's like wildly growing in nature. And um, they realized because Feng Feng is a medicinal plant that is highly lucrative in Chinese traditional medicine to fight against wind diseases. So that's like pneumonia or like arthritis or things that make you cold in like the um, Chinese medicinal humoral medicine because feng feng was just, is like a highly lucrative, a highly desirable plant, especially uh, in traditional medicine when it's seen as wildly grown. So these temp laborers, these Chinese temp laborers, basically found a local Mongolian man who was well-networked and offered him money to become a middleman, where he would basically go around to local areas and tell people, or like to families, and tell people that he would give them money if they could bring him feng feng from the steppe. So that really started, at the time, people didn't have money so much. So he was just giving people loans and goods and food because, you know, at the time in the, in the 90s, uh, Mongolia was struggling economically so, and people too. So they just wanted food mostly. But 
as Mongolia, as this became a bigger market and as more and more people caught on, and also as the price of feng feng continued to rise in China, more and more people in Magtash started engaging in it. And so by the time of my main fieldwork on, Magta- uh, on Feng Feng in 2017, it had been ongoing for almost 20 years as a local picking industry, I mean, or a local practice. Um, or I say picking because in Mongolian it's called picking, but harvesting essentially of these plants from the steppe. So that was how I discovered, first of all, that you know people were, this is how many rural Mongolians supplied their livelihoods. Um, but also this was how, you know, I, I noticed this because of course I presented the problem with debt that said that as, like one of the benefits of doing long-term field work, of course, when you're in an area for a really long time, is you can see the changes throughout the year. And so, you know, I first arrived in, in the winter and people were all indebted, but then towards the middle of the summer and early fall, I recognized, I started realizing that people were suddenly paying back their debts and that was, I also realized at the time that when you woke up, that if you woke up early, you would see every morning at six or seven, like a flurry of people getting into cars and then going out into the countryside. And then again at 7 p.m. coming back and repeating it every day. And of course, I was like, what's happening? And I asked the homestay family I was with and like people, and they were telling me that they were all going to go pick Feng Feng. So I essentially found out then, you know, through doing like further like research where I asked people where their money comes from and such, that debt was being used throughout the year to kind of like in the interim to like kind of like supply lives during most of the year, which was then paid off like the accrued debt was was paid off, if not paid off, then minimized through this flurry of activity in the fall around the Feng Feng trade and then and other resources as well. Um, so yeah, that's how those two things <laughs> interrelate in my field site. And I talk about that extensively in the book. Let's turn now to the theoretical framework that you're deploying throughout the book and in your work. As an economic anthropologist, you're of course drawing on a rich tradition, examining kind of the cultural and the moral dimensions of markets and money. Um, but you're also, as I understand it, distinguishing yourself from some of that literature as well. How do you conceptualize that relationship broadly between culture and economy um, in your field site to the extent that those can be analytically distinguished at all? Yeah, the question of like culture and economy is a huge one, but I'll get back to it at the end. But just to talk a little about the theoretical trajectory of the book. So I, I, in my introduction, I, t- I make two contributions, but the one, the first one is this ethnographically derived one that I just now talked about that at least in, in Mongolia, but in, I think in, this is like probably a, something that happens beyond the, just this immediate sphere, but in this type of environment where people have debt, but they don't really practically have the ability to pay it off. So they don't have employment or other type of like uh, really like large, larger options or larger market access um, that in these contexts, debt is a contributor to illegality or in this case, the illegal wildlife trade. So that is that one contribution, but so theoretically, the book is called Moral Economic Transitions because I I coined this term moral economic 
dichotomies or dichotomizations, which I'll talk about in a second. But essentially, in the context of like historical Mongolia, like I recall that Mongolia is a country that historically has been very influenced by pastoralism, which is something, uh, a worldview or a cosmology that it means that you have to rely on the environment and that you shouldn't dig or, or hurt the environment. Anything that would endanger the ability for herds to reproduce is an immoral act. So in the light of that, though, Mongolians now, at least in Magtash, are very dependent on extraction, which is in many ways something that historically would have been seen as a negative or immoral or not tenable or non-spiritual. And so I was interested in that question of how that, like how this relationship arose or how people feel about it. And I quickly realized in doing my field work that people often were unhappy about it. It wasn't like people were extracting now or taking resources. And there was a lot of saying, well, I have to, it's for my family, that this is like what the market requires of me. But, you know, and like in that way, deeming it as moral, but also many people were very unhappy about this state of being. Like I have one example where I did work with like a fish middleman, because in addition to the feng feng, I did a lot of work with fish smugglers. And I, you know, was having, was like drunk, <laughs> like with him at a party. And then he turns to me suddenly and he's like, you know, I have to do it. I have to, it's for my family. And, you know, like I had a lot of instances of like that, where people were just justifying or feeling obviously like this was not a great state of being, but that it was like now required. And so I was conceptualizing this ambiguity, essentially this like moral ambiguity around all of this like extraction that was going on. So in, I actually will give you a few examples because like this emerged because this like narrative or like these thought processes emerged from me actually writing each chapter. So I noticed in writing the chapters that each chapter had some type of moral like segmentation going on where like people saw the some act as like moral or immoral or some person involved in economic, a political economy. So just to give an, like examples is that in my chapter one, I talk about people's idealizations of politicians, like contemporary politicians, and that they'll say politicians are either good or real based on if they see those politicians as doing things that help local people versus bad politicians who are ones that look, who like emphasize extraction that interests like foreign companies or foreign exchange. And then in chapter two with the Feng Feng, People say that feng feng extraction is good because it helps local people um, and it's in like a balance that keeps local like livelihoods, but that extraction of oil. So in my field site, there is also an oil company and that the oil is bad because it interests not local people, but like foreign entities or foreign markets. And then so they also extrapolate that onto like the national level. So that mining is good if it's moderated by the government. So then it becomes like national wealth, but it's bad if it's like privatized or it's too much for the interest of like company, private companies. And then in chapter three, um, people talk about feng feng and fish prices and how 
prices that are good for local people. So like in the relation between people and middlemen, if that price is higher relatively for local people, those are moral and they, they use the term merit making. So using like the Buddhist term for virtue or merit. And that if the prices are more in the interest of the middlemen, like more profit oriented for the middlemen, then they're more immoral. And then in chapter four and five, I talk about how debts and loans also get internally um, kind of fractured or kind of internally morally characterized by if the if the debt is something that like helps you and your family and those who are close to you versus hurts you. And that also the actors who would engage in these enterprises, so like money lenders would be morally categorized locally as like good or bad based on if they give rates that actually are helpful to people or not. And the same with middlemen. So it was actually in the course of basically writing out all of these chapters and then realizing every chapter has a framework that's like, this is good, this is bad. And it was just that this was like reoccurring that I kind of, it made me conceptualize like what was happening here. And so I come up with the idea of the moral economic framework, but basically that in settings, and in this case, this is really clear to see because it's a remote area that's more isolated than maybe some other places, but in settings where people become newly dependent on some type of economic enterprise that they historically wouldn't have felt comfortable with. So I could say something like smuggling or drugs or in this case, like extraction, mining, those kind of things that I think that often people in order to navigate that create these frameworks of when it is or isn't good to do so. So essentially, often the trope that if I'm doing it for my, you know, for my family, but or, or maybe for my to continue something that I conceive as like a, a value that's important to me, then it's good. But if it's not, if it's short, for short-term profit or in a manner that undermines this value, for whatever reason, then I see it as immoral. And because also I think because of how isolated Magtash uh, was, I think that just these dichotomies were just very stark because it was undergoing this process of where or was in this moment where it was just people were just at a wide scale picking in a manner that people historically probably wouldn't have felt comfortable with, but we're now kind of trying to create strategies to or like mentally grapple with this circumstance. Yeah, so that's why I come up with the idea of moral economic dichotomization, I say, because I say this is a framework that isn't something that like in contrast to maybe other narratives or other theories about the moral economy, that this isn't something that historically existed here, but rather it's through the engagement of these people with the market and also with these circumstances of where they have to start kind of navigating about like their own personal value vis-a-vis how they can go about this in the market economy, that these kind of conceptualizations or considerations start emerging. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit actually of Polanyi, or it's like you're adding this nice corrective to Polanyi maybe where it's rather than this move from embeddedness to disembeddedness, you're showing that actually it's it's like a move to draw the lines in different ways so that you can keep some sense of embeddedness. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, of course, I know this is really reminiscent of Polanyi and other kind of theoricians from like between like around the 60s, 70s and 80s. There's a lot of in economic anthropology, a lot of debates about what happens when 
circumstance or when groups like are then new are integrated into markets. So the thing with Polanyi and also with Thompson, which is a theorician who originally came up or not originally, but used the idea of moral economy very widely um, to talk about frameworks of when people think it is or isn't good to, to commodify something. They create, unfortunately for them, grand theories. So like Polanyi talks a lot about like in the pre in past it was embedded and now it's disembedded. And the problem with those things is that opens them up to critique really easily because whereas Thompson said these frameworks were like a traditional thing and as groups got integrated into the economy, then they were now in the quote unquote like modern political economy, um, which is like a disembedded one. And I'm not trying to say that, like, I'm not, I think it's really dangerous to like kind of extrapolate from my field site to like all of capitalism, <laughs> you know, it's like, like a general mode, but I think also something that I try to emphasize in the book is that this is a framework that they people themselves are coming up with. So this isn't me as like a theorician saying they're doing this, but rather they themselves are grappling with this like fracturing of value, which goes to the question that you're that you asked me about the relation of culture and economy. Um, so they themselves are creating this as like a navigating strategy because which is not to say that they are now being disembedded. It's just like a new form of engagement. So it's like a new new way to look like, so you see the economy, the economy has like senses, like has like, or like the market places certain requirements of economic value. And so you have to negotiate vis-a-vis -vis that to make the life that you want to. Because unfortunately for like Polanyi, the idea then is Polanyi is embedded or disembedded a narrative is the idea is that the people who are engaging now with the economy essentially will become like these automated, unsocialized selves, globalized selves. And of course, that's not what happens. Um, it's this like continual framework back and forth. And so like, I know the work is reminiscent of these debates, but I think my point I'm trying to make is that this is a framework that people locally are creating because they are now themselves engaging with this like continual strategizing and that itself is maybe what the economy does. I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to create like a huge narrative of this is capitalism does this everywhere. But in this setting, this is how people are engaging with it. Now, that doesn't mean that they are now are going to become desocialized selves. I just the point is using the term from this theorician, Thomas, um, they're going through the re and disentangling of value constantly as they're engaging with it. And so I think that itself is the interesting point. And to get back to a part of that earlier question, is this all related somehow to this question of the relationship between culture and economy broadly? Yeah, I mean, so the moral economic dichotomization also is inspired by the idea that, as I mentioned, that people themselves are aware of certain concepts of economic value and how that may or may not relate to other forms of value that they have. So to speak of this relation of culture and economy and the people themselves creating these kind of dichotomies of like conceptualizing them as different domains that then need to be navigated with them um, through these frameworks or through their everyday uh, behavior or interaction with the economy. Something that reoccurs throughout the book that is subtle that I don't ever like kind of say on the nose but I think that if somebody who read through the book they'd be able to kind of tease it out is something that I would conceptualize as the parallelization of value 
So what I mean by that is that even in English, when we use the word wealth, for example, we have one definition that is like real wealth is your friends and family and how much you know love you have in your life versus wealth as in like pure material gain or like riches. And then you see that in a lot of words. So you see debt, for example, has social debt where you have debt to society and community and parents. And then you have debt in terms of like economic debt vis-a-vis a bank, which is that kind of bank relation. And then the word value or values versus value itself is really indicative of that kind of parallelization that we conceptually create. And one thing that was really evident when I was like examining the way different terms were being used in Mongolia and amongst my field work and interlocutors was that they themselves were creating this parallelization in the different words they were using. So for example, in the book, I uh, talk extensively in chapter two about the concept of fortune. And historically in, in Mongolia, fortune was like, you interacted with the land in a good way and the land spirits or masters would give you um, fecundity in terms of family and returns in terms of like a, like a large herd and good health. But increasingly through these engagements with the economy, people were, this term fortune was parallelizing, I suppose, or like fragmenting into an economic term or a political economic term where it was like, fortune was how much wealth you had, like material wealth or how much wealth the economy had versus this fortune of the spirits and those kind of things. And so that was one example, but there were many that like a lot of this stuff was like reoccurring in all the chapters where like the word for merit was seen, as I mentioned, like merit, like prices that are seen as virtuous or like making merit. So there were merit was like expressed through monetary means or expressed through alms. So like charity in those and like non-monetary means versus like then they had the debts with people's extensive debt that I was talking about was also because people were conflating social debt and like debt to the bank. So like you wanted to help your friends and family, but you know, cause you, you feel like you owe them a debt um, or that you are like a mutual, you're a, you want to help them because they're, your friends and family. So you have a social debt, but that was being conflated by the de- debt with the banks. Um, and so, and then also with the concept of homeland, that there was like a historical concept of homeland was like your spiritual interaction and attachment, like literally to the spirits of the land. But that homeland was increasingly being fractured into a concept of like political nationalism, you know, an economic like protectionism. So this was something that kept emerging. And so I think that is to speaking of the relation of culture and economy, I suppose, that I think what the this parallelization of value speaks to people on a local level, trying to increasingly see these different frameworks as disentangled, but always that because it's like a false disentangling, they're like always really one, you know, and so it's this like constant disentangling and reentangling that people are involved in. So to go back to that Polony uh, like comment is that uh, that I think what is interesting here is more this like false fracturing and combination that people are going through, which is I think more of what the market is creating here rather than some type of grand narrative of we're all being disembedded now, but rather it's this like being in the like ontological experience, if you will, 
of having to re and disentangle value constantly. I want to turn now to the actual writing of the book. One of the things that I really appreciated that you said a bit earlier in our conversation was how you were deriving all of these theoretical contributions that you're making really from not only the ethnographic data that you collected in Mongolia, but also through the act of writing and sort of drawing out the ethnographic work, you're, you come, you just sort of derive these theoretical contributions, which is not an easy trick to pull off with something like ethnography that's so situated and locally specific often. And when we first met a couple of years ago, we were actually part of a writing group together here at the International Institute for Asian Studies. And now your dissertation has transformed into this bigger book project. And since this is such a common struggle for young scholars, including myself, I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit on that process of turning what was a dissertation into something that gets reworked as a book. Do you have any advice for scholars looking to do that or any cautionary tales for recent PhDs who are trying to um, pull off that maneuver? You know, I am lucky that like the, the different chapters work together as a story. And it really did take me time to like step back and then reapproach the whole thing and really have to conceptualize how they work as a story and not just as like individual chapters, which they do. Um, and so a lot of the great theoretical ideas that are ultimately in the intro about like what the book is about is just from that move of being able to distance yourself slightly and then kind of create a mind map of how the different chapters interrelate with one another. And then when you start seeing these patterns of how the chapters interrelate, you can recognize, okay, that's something that's interesting. That's what my field work is telling me, or that's something that's of value that's not just happening in one instance, but rather across the board. And that's really what the book is about. So I kind of think I wrote all the chapters individually with trying to like turn them into articles and then could take a step back and then look at like, how are the chapters working together? And then I saw what the framework was. And I think for me personally, because it's just the way I work, it's like write the chapters first and then the intro, not have the intro first and then write the chapters because you don't, you cannot know what they're telling you until you have like really laid out all the ethnographic detail or examples next to each other. And then you see how these work together. So hope that's helpful. As we approach the end here, I just want to ask one more question about your future work, what you have in store. Are there aspects of this project that you're continuing to follow moving forward? Or are you, from a research standpoint, are you moving into other topics, other themes, maybe even in other parts of the world? Um, so, no, I'm very much still in Mongolia uh, or doing Mongolia fieldwork. So actually based on this field work with Feng Feng, which I thought was very interesting, this kind of all this covert illegal harvesting that was happening in rural Mongolia, I became interested in, um, in how that was like a larger phenomenon, not just in this like specific area, but how across the board in Mongolia, but also in Central Asia in general, there's like similar phenomena happening of like rural areas and rural people extracting resources that can be fed into Chinese traditional med medicinal networks. And so I became very interested in kind of, first of all, how broad this phenomenon is, 
my field work in Mugtash was so specific to Mugtash, but I wasn't able to really see how much these dynamics were like a bigger phenomenon that like beyond like specifically how the Feng Feng traveled, I wasn't able to like, I didn't investigate other areas to see how much picking was, was happening or harvesting of plants. So I actually uh, pitched a project. um, And so right now I am a postdoctoral, an EU-funded postdoctoral fellow at Palatsky because I wrote a research project on looking at um, kind of these plant networks and how extensive they are in Mongolia. Also, because what I was aware of with my awareness of pricing of these um, different wildlife chains or resource trades that Mongolians themselves, when they harvest these plants, get like a fraction. I mean, it's the classic like supply chain issue, but the harvester of the raw material gets very like almost nothing of the final price when it's sold on the international market in China or to a consumer. So I was interested in investigating kind of how these prices are distributed, but also with like a like a mind to looking at how can one formulate, I mean, it's a very idealized thing, but how can one form, formulate situations here where Mongolians can get larger returns and also do these in a, do this in a more sustainable manner. So right now I have this uh, EU postdoc at Palatsky University where I am looking like I, I'm actually going to return to Mongolia in June to then investigate the larger dynamics of feng feng, but also licorice root. Also, because this is of interest, of course, because during COVID, feng feng also jumped in value because it was being used as like an official official remedy by the Chinese government against the coronavirus. So this is only right now just exploding as an industry. So I'm interested in going back and kind of doing more research on how widespread this phenomenon is. Yeah, that's a really interesting story to follow moving forward and one that you mentioned Central Asia, but has also resonances in, say, Nepal, where I work on in its own northern borderlands. So I look forward to hearing what comes of that project. And I hope that when it's finished, you'll come back on the podcast and discuss it with us. Um, yeah, definitely. I look forward to doing so. Uh, right now, I actually also am working together with the Tibetan specialist who talks a lot about how also in Ayurvedic medicine, these harvesting chains are also an issue kind of in speaking of the dynamics in capitalism like how do you create a product that's unique but do it in a standardized manner so that's like these issues of the standardization of this like hyper unique special resource that is only desirable because it's you know wild wild so that's an issue that is all across Asia so we can definitely talk about it when I have more results for you when I come back next time. I look forward to it. Until then, I would encourage all of our listeners to check out the new book, Moral Economic Transitions in the Mongolian Borderlands. Again, it's available open access, so do seek it out. Hedwig Waters, thank you so much for joining me on the channel and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. That was Hedwig Waters, Horizon Europe ERA Postdoctoral Fellow at Palatsky University. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. 
This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.